The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Mm, that's right, people. We are on the clock today. It's a whole new approach to the history of literature. Quick theme song, not too much time to waste today. That clock is ticking. What does it mean? The end of summer. The last few decades of an overcooked planet. Set those thoughts sorry. Set those thoughts aside if you can. We're going more micro than macro here. We are finally tackling Henry James's The Beast in the Jungle. And I'm afraid that I will talk for 10 hours about this story, this long, short story, short, long story. I don't mind talking for 10 hours about a story like this one. Oh, by the way, we'll read the story, too. So this is what we used to call a self-contained episode of the history of literature. You'll hear the story. You'll get the analysis. You will get everything you need. This is like one of those boxes you open, and it has all the ingredients, and you just have to... To cut open the little packages, the little packets, and cook it up according to the directions. Except you don't even have to do that. You just get to eat. I'm doing the cooking, I guess. You might think of that as a restaurant, quote unquote. And what do you want from your restaurant? You want good food, sure. You want a nice atmosphere, of course. But you also want a way to spend your time, don't you? Your blocks of precious time, and we want to deliver that experience. You wouldn't want a restaurant to take nine hours, would you? Of course not. We want to deliver that experience to you right here today with this episode or these episodes. Our Beast in the Jungle episodes are going to be on a timer. That's why we heard the clock at the beginning. You get five minutes of introduction, more or less. I'll just... You don't need to know the times. I don't want you to be thinking about it, but I'm setting an alarm. We're going to do so. We're going to do some discussion. We'll do a break. We'll do some more discussion, another break, and then 40 minutes. So it's like that that settling in period where you get the menu and you drink water and so on. Maybe a bit of bread, smiling at your companions. That's where we are now, by the way. This this is the stage we're in. You're looking around not impatient. You're just excited to be here. Then an appetizer. It arrives in timely fashion and you get to enjoy it. Kind of break that hunger of yours. Get something tasty on your palate. Then the plates are cleared and the main course arrives. And then if it's good, you come back for more. Another evening or another episode. That's our goal. But to stick with the schedule, we're setting a timer. I've got it right here next to me. We'll just stop when we need to stop. We're here to serve. We're not some 
prima donna chef who insists he needs five hours to make your meal properly. We're trying to keep this place open for business. When the timer goes off, we will move on. Now, breathe. Exhale. This doesn't need to be hurried. It's a frenzy in the kitchen. But out here, I'm the calm and smiling waiter. And you are the patron. My dear patron, would you like to have a drink? And today's specialty is one I recommend. The Beast in the Jungle by Henry James. Or should I say, The Feast in the Jungle. Ha ha. Maybe that should be the name of our little bistro. In any case, dear patron, I will be right back with your appetizer. First, an email. This one comes from India. Subject. Well, I can't, can't read the subject out loud. I don't know how it's pronounced. Subject. Ah. <laughs> it's five exclamation marks. How would you say that? Subject. Zing. <laughs> That's how I hear it in my head. Whoa. Hello. Okay. Subject. Five exclamation marks. Hey, Jack. This email follows a year-long fussing over what I should write to you, besides only thanking you for this trove of a podcast. More on that later. But first, let me thank your squirrel-like voice. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Let me stop there. Squirrel-like voice? I thought from the subject line and that wonderful, generous first sentence that I might be I might be sliding through here, getting a compliment, getting a nice email, squirrel-like voice. Now I have to apologize for that. I'm sorry for my squirrel-like voice. Well, I'll go on. Email continues. Let me thank you, your squirrel-like, and then in parentheses it says, and therefore adorable and adventurous, close parentheses. Now this this is why I included this email. I love this. I love, I'm not even going to read the rest because I get stuck there. Squirrel-like voice, parentheses, therefore adorable and adventurous. I'll, I'll give you the highlights of the rest of the letter. Abisek, our emailer, was going through a stagnant phase. Student of literature, looking for inspiration, found the podcast, loves Juna Barnes, would like an episode on Japanese modernism. I love the whole thing. Love the whole email. A work in the grove that inspired Akira Kurosawa. My goodness. This is good stuff. I've got to rewatch Kurosawa soon. I went through a huge phase, and that was fantastic. Kurosawa doing Shakespeare. Excellence. Okay, so that's the email. Very nice, very kind. 10,000 steps a day. Abisek is walking. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Abisek. 10,000 steps a day, and the podcast helps pass the time. Healthy body, healthy mind, good for you. But let's get back to the main issue here. Squirrel-like voice. (laughs) Oh, I will accept the description, and I love the parenthetical. Therefore, adorable and adventurous. That's... That reminded me of something. Can't you just picture our emailer writing and saying, yes, this voice is like a squirrel. I'll mention that. And then thinking, oh, well, my friend Jack might not think that's such a nice thing to say since he 
His livelihood is based on his voice, and I just called it squirrel-like, a rodent. So I'll, should I edit that out now? I'll just add adorable and adventurous. Okay, I get it. I get it. I will take it in that spirit. Squirrel-like is not, look, look, I would like to think as I sit here that I'm Cary Grant, <laughs> Ted Danson, young Frank Sinatra, James Bond. Would you say James Bond has a squirrel-like voice? But okay, fine. Fine, fine. I'll take the parentheses. Adorable and adventurous. I hear you. I live within reality. I know my voice is my voice. But here's why I'm quoting this email. Because this is what <laughs> that parenthetical reminded me of. When I was in college, there was a DJ who did some music. But he did a lot of voices. This was on the radio. He did some, some voices and characters. Not quite a shock jock. More of a midday kind of thing. And he had this little catchphrase. It's not original or anything, but he would do this thing where he'd tell a joke, he'd make a pun or or tell some bad joke, and then he'd say, oh, you're a good crowd. Oh, you're a good crowd. Kind of like that little phrase. I'll be here all night, folks. You know, I'll be appearing. And you know how stand-ups say that. Or not stand-ups so much as, as real people you know who do something like a stand-up, and then they, they call attention to their joke as a corny joke or a bad joke. It's a big wink to the audience or their listeners. Oh, good crowd. That's what he would say. Oh, you're a good crowd. Good crowd tonight. Good crowd. So a bunch of us in the dorm started saying that, just punctuating our bad jokes with stuff like that. Or if someone told a bad joke, you might, instead of laughing or cringing or saying, ah, oh, groaning, you'd say, oh, good crowd, good crowd, good crowd tonight, huh? And one day, a friend of mine in this dorm, one of my favorite people in the world, extremely cool person, everyone loved, said, he's a good crowd, he's a good crowd. I said, what? He? Who are you talking about? He's a good crowd? And he said, huh? What? Isn't that, isn't that what we say? Isn't that... He was, he felt left out. Suddenly he was a little confused. Isn't that what we are, isn't that what we've all been saying? And I said, what exactly are you saying? And he said, good kraut. He's a good kraut. A good kraut. And I said, how are you, how do you spell kraut? We're saying crowd, C-R-O-W-D. You're a good crowd, like you're a good crowd tonight. And he said, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's that's better, actually. <laughs> and I said, of course it was better. How did you spell, what were you saying? And he said, kraut, K-R-A-U-T. Like, he's a good kraut. And I said, what did, what did, what did you think? Good kraut, man. Why would that fit? And he said, and this is this is what reminded me of that parenthetical with the adorable and adventurous squirrel-like voice. You sound like a squirrel. Oh, uh, by that I mean adorable and adventurous. I said to my friend, why? Why? Why would we be saying he's a good kraut? 
And my friends, I said, what, what, what would a good kraut even be? And my friend said, oh, I don't know. Fun loving, stand up for the Kaiser. <laughs> stand up for the Kaiser. Don't we all need a little bit? Whoa. Okay, so there's our timer. Not sure if you can hear that. It's here in the studio with me. The timer is telling me that it is time to move on. So you've ordered now. You've had your little your little stint where you looked at the menu, you ordered, and guess what? I will be bringing out the appetizer and the main course. We will be right back with a a platter full of delectable morsels after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, I'm back. The adorable and adventurous squirrel-like host is here, or your waiter for the evening, as we're following this trope, <laughs> beating it into the ground. I hope you're a fun, in a fun-loving mood, ready to stand up for the Kaiser. My goodness, what was my friend thinking? But he was, he was, he straightened out. That's what college is for. He's a doctor now, saving lives. God bless him. Okay, Henry James. This is our appetizer. Let's recap where we are in our story with him. Born in 1843 in New York City, grew up in a wealthy family. His grandfather had emigrated to America from Ireland around 1789, that momentous year. Made a killing in real estate and the building of the Erie Canal. James's father, Henry James Sr., was a deep thinker a kind of amateur philosopher who was well-liked and hung around Emerson and Thoreau. Henry and his brother William, William who became a famous philosopher, and their other siblings were educated in New York and Europe and lived a life of privilege, but also one of commitment to ideas and thought and art. Henry loved Nathaniel Hawthorne, wrote a book about him. Eventually, Henry became one of America's most accomplished and industrious and celebrated authors. There was a point where he cast a very powerful shadow over American letters. His example was so strong. He was so devoted to the art of fiction, and he wrote so many good novels. They can be difficult to read, 
especially his later works. But when you let yourself go with the style, when you succumb to it, there are so many treasures embedded within. You can start to feel like this guy's done it all. There's nothing that he hasn't considered or attempted or, or mastered. That's how people felt in the decades after he was writing. And yet, there's something difficult for readers to access with him. He's generous with his insights and observations, but he's guarded too. His prose can be a thicket. His position as an author can be sealed up as, as tight as a, a locked railway car. Where the devil is James in all this, you might find yourself thinking. There's prose here, intense prose, miles and miles of it, and there's plot and characters and a story, and it, it checks every box, but where's the author? Sometimes it feels like it's all brain and not enough heart. It's all literature and no Henry. That's how it can feel sometimes, like it's written by a machine. James himself was guarded, pinched, reserved, tight. He would break into sobs when talking about his dog. And he felt things. Clearly, he felt things. He, was, he wasn't Rain Man, but he was also blocked. Some say it's due to sexual confusion or sexual shame, deep sexual privacy. He was in the closet, many believe. It's a testament to just how blocked he was in this respect that although he was famous for most of his life and very social and close to his siblings, and he wrote millions of words, letters, and published works, and yet there's still no definitive answer to this question. That's a pretty guarded person. That's maybe somebody who's guarded even from themselves, somebody who's living with some kind of shield around him, an apparatus, deeply embedded frustration or some source of secrecy, and a lot of critics and readers will read James and think, if only there was a little more freedom here, if he hadn't been quite so tightly wound. Maybe the novels would breathe just a little more than they do. And although many readers take great pleasure in James's novels, even today, I would say that it's a, it's a very refined pleasure. He's not Jane Austen. He's not Dickens. Not popular like that. He was every bit as, as worthy as a novelist, as figures like that. He's in their league, but he's not as beloved, and I don't think he ever will be. But I'm a fan. I think of reading James as being like deep-sea diving. Sure, it might be easier to stay on the boat and, and wait for fish to jump on board, or just enjoy the breeze and the the sunset, or might be easier to snorkel where you're breathing easy in clear water. There's a time and a place for both, but sometimes you want to take the risk of going very, very deep down there where it's dark and there's so much intense pressure because you've never felt that way before. Something new, that's kind of exciting. But it's also because you might find find <laughs> it's because you might find something rare. That's what reading James is like. And now, one thing I wanted to mention before we begin. Well, there are three things we want to talk about. I'll start with the first one. It doesn't really matter to us today if James was 
in the closet, a gay man in the closet. It would explain a lot, but it doesn't explain everything. And for the purposes of our story or for any fiction, the author's life doesn't necessarily matter. We don't need to guess and we don't need to search for clues. You can read that way if you want. But we can, let me, let me put it this way. Let's say we're trying to understand what it feels like to be proud. Let's say that an author is writing about a character who's proud, very proud. Let's say we want to experience that through the medium of fiction. Understand might be the wrong word to use. Let's say we... Let's say someone else has felt it, has felt pride, and has written about pride and wants us to understand the degree or the nature or the quality of that pride, too. Now, maybe the author was the director of a movie, let's say, and there's kind of a pride in finishing the film and having all your artistic goals achieved and seeing it on the screen. And maybe the director writes about that specifically. I finished my movie. I was overwhelmed with pride. This is what it felt like. I'll put it in this book. And so you get the details. Now, I don't need to have directed a movie to appreciate that feeling of pride. I can translate my own accomplishments. Maybe I was proud of something in my own life. And I can relate to this feeling of pride. Maybe for me, it's like the feeling I had when I finished uh, uh, writing something or something else. Or maybe I've never quite felt the pride as it's described by this movie director. And I think, wow, finishing a movie, that sounds like the pride that I've felt on steroids. That's what writing does. We, we rise a level of abstraction to share, right? You don't have to be a movie director to understand pride. Pride is shared among all of us at that level of abstraction. So, Let's say James is feeling frustrated because he knows he's gay or he thinks he's gay or he's afraid he's gay or whatever you want to say. Well, if he wrote about that directly in his character, then great. We can read it for that. But if all that feeling, and again, we don't know exactly what he felt on this, but we sense that there's something there, a feeling of, of not connecting, a feeling of imprisonment, a feeling that something in him made him sad or quiet or melancholy or unfulfilled. Maybe it was shame. Maybe it was fear. Maybe it was a feeling that, that art trumped life or reputation trumped reality or society trumped self. Maybe it's the kind of thing we all experience in one way or another, the feeling that we haven't let ourselves be something we should have been. Maybe we wanted to be a great chef and we became an accountant because our parents wanted us to. Being gay in the closet has all of its own details, and if a writer is writing about that specifically, great, we can learn from that. If they're writing about it abstractly, indirectly, that's great too. We're going to relate to it on a specific level and on an abstract level. That's how fiction works. So that's the first thing I wanted to mention. The second thing is to remind you of Constance Fenimore Wilson. We did an episode on her, a couple of them, actually. She was a great friend of James's, although at times, James held her off a little bit. The two of them were close. They wrote to each other every day for long stretches of time. They lived in the same building in separate apartments. They toured Europe together. I'm still close to some of the people I traveled with decades ago. Travel is a great uniter. It's hard to do with other people, but when you find someone you can travel with, it can be magical, and the bonds that you share can get very tight. 
And James, although he didn't like Constance Fenimore Wilson at first, she grew on him. He came to realize her advantages. He enjoyed traveling with her. And then she died by accident or by her own hand in Venice. We're not sure. At the age of 53, fell from a fourth-story window when James was 51. He lived another 20 years or so. He wrote this story, The Beast in the Jungle, about nine years later, after her death. Some say it's a direct response to his relationship with Constance Fenimore Wilson, or lack of relationship, you might say. He never married. Wilson never married. They certainly didn't marry each other. They didn't marry anyone. She had some young affairs that didn't work out. They weren't affairs. Some young engagements that didn't work out. Some bows. B-E-A-U-S. They were wedded to their art, one might say, grandly, or less grandly, blocked by their psychology, their psychological defects, do I want to say? I don't think I want to say that. Blocked by something in their psychology from giving themselves to another or to each other, and they both felt it as a lack They were writers, after all, great observers of the world, and they saw that everyone else had love and sex as animating forces and committed relationships, monogamous ones, affairs, what have you. All of that that men and women, or women and women, or men and men, all that that two people have with one another, for the most part, most people have that as a a huge driving force in their lives, and for the most part, these two did not. So, this is Henry James turning 60, looking back on a life partially lived. Some say it's about Wilson. Some say it's among the greatest short narratives ever written. I say that it's, whoa. Okay, there we go. There's our timer. (laughs) Your food is ready. All right, let me turn this off. I say, I guess I say we will be back with our main course, Henry James's Beast in the Jungle, after this. The Beast in the Jungle by Henry James, Chapter 1. What determined the speech that startled him in the course of their encounter scarcely matters, being probably but some words spoken by himself quite without intention, spoken as they lingered and slowly moved together after their renewal of acquaintance. Let me pause there. We're going to do an annotated version of this chapter one to start out with. That's the first sentence, what I just read. Huh? Did you follow that? Who? What? Huh? You can read that sentence a few times before it makes sense. I'll read it again. What determined the speech that startled him in the course of their encounter scarcely matters, being probably but some words spoken by himself quite without intention, spoken as they lingered and slowly moved together after their renewal of acquaintance. James, did you follow at that time? you know what's going on? James is kind of like Shakespeare. The more you read, the easier and the more fluid it becomes. But it's not simple. You could rewrite that first sentence for meaning 
and say they hadn't met for years, but something drew them together. They recognized something familiar about one another. And then he said this or that. Doesn't matter what he said. And she replied with something else. And suddenly he was startled to remember that he knew her. That's what the sentence is saying. We don't know who he is or who she is yet, but we have to trust the author that we'll get there. Let's move on to the second sentence. He had been conveyed by friends an hour or two before to the house at which she was staying. The party of visitors at the other house, of whom he was one, and thanks to whom it was his theory, as always, that he was lost in the crowd, had been invited over to luncheon. Again, that's difficult. Okay, I'm not going to read the story sentence by sentence. Don't worry. I won't keep interrupting, but I can tell you that many readers will put the book down at this point. Two sentences in and think, why? Why make me work so hard, Henry James? All this is saying, the second sentence is saying that they met because his friends brought him to a house and she was staying there. Why this meandering sentence? We get a few notes, a few clues. We hear that they were invited over to luncheon, which is a bit of scene setting. That sounds pretty grand. Luncheon. I grew up in a house where we ate lunch. That house has been there 50 years now, and my parents have never held a luncheon there, not once. And look at this. Here's a little phrase, though. This beauty embedded in here. You deep sea diver, make sure you turn your flashlight over here to catch this one. The party of visitors at the other house, of whom he was one, and thanks to whom it was his theory, as always, that he was lost in the crowd. That's pretty gorgeous. We go miles underwater to catch a glimpse of that shimmering creature. He's with a group of people, whoever this is, a party of visitors. Party is such a great word here. Sounds like they're all having fun, doesn't it? All smiles and and hearty hellos. Fun-loving and standing up for the Kaiser at this luncheon. And thanks to them, thanks to them, he has a theory, as always, that he was lost in the crowd. Here's a party. Here's a luncheon. I'm not part of it. I'm in a crowd and I'm lost. Lost in the crowd. What a beautiful phrase. When people are here... The more people who are around me, the more I feel alone. Have you ever felt like that? I have. You're at some place and you think, I'm not like everyone else. Boy, you can add more people here and I I don't feel less lonely. I feel more lonely. I'm lost. Not lost in a desert. Not lost on a desert island. But lost in the crowd. You're different. Something about you is different. That's the feeling. So we're two sentences in. What did we hear in the first sentence? He drifted toward her, renewed his acquaintance. They lingered and slowly moved together. They spoke some idle words. It doesn't even matter what. And suddenly he was startled into recognition that he knew her from long ago. These two sentences are kind of off-putting. Why not be more direct about who we're looking at here? Why so much throat clearing? Why are you wandering around with your words? That's how it feels at first until you get used to Henry James. You think, are you being paid by the word, Mr. James? Did it take you this long to get going? Like the engine was cold and had to be revved up. But now we see, no, these were deliberate choices. Maddening in a way, but also perfect. Boy meets girl. That's all it is. Or man meets woman, I should say. 
especially, should always say that about adults, but especially because in this case, there was some passage of time. Sounds like years went by, enough time to, to forget one another or change appearance enough that you don't recognize each other. Something, man meets woman, man is lonely, man startled to be reunited with woman he knew long ago. Now I'm in. I'm in already. I want to know who and what and how and why. How did they know each other before? What drove them apart and what's going to happen now that they've seen each other once again? Will it change him and who he is? And his feeling, which goes straight to my heart, that he was lost in the crowd. He's been at this luncheon, but now he sees someone familiar. He's on this this ocean of anonymity. And yet... He sees a life preserver, her. Let's just read a bit before I interrupt again. I'll try anyway. What you're going to hear now is more about the house, which is kind of like a mansion or a museum. So we'll see where these two are. It's a great house with lots of art and things to look at, but I'll just read it in Henry James's prose. Okay, here we go. There had been after luncheon much dispersal, all in the interest of the original motive, a view of Weatherend itself and the fine things, intrinsic features, pictures, heirlooms, treasures of all the arts that made the place almost famous. And the great rooms were so numerous that guests could wander at their will, hang back from the principal group, and in cases where they took such matters with the last seriousness, give themselves up to mysterious appreciations and measurements. There were persons to be observed, singly or in couples, bending toward objects in out-of-the-way corners, with their hands on their knees and their heads nodding, quite as with the emphasis of an excited sense of smell. When they were two, they either mingled their sounds of ecstasy or melted into silences of even deeper import, so that there were aspects of the occasion that gave it for Marcher much the air of the look-round, previous to a sale highly advertised, that excites or quenches, as may be, the dream of acquisition. The dream of acquisition at Weatherend would have had to be wild indeed, and John Marcher found himself, among such suggestions, disconcerted almost equally by the presence of those who knew too much and by that of those who knew nothing." The great rooms caused so much poetry and history to press upon him that he needed some straying apart to feel in a proper relation with them, though this impulse was not, as happened, like the gloating of some of his companions, to be compared to the movements of a dog sniffing a cupboard. It had an issue promptly enough in a direction that was not to have been calculated. Okay. So now we know who Marcher is. He's rich, or at least he's among the rich, and he's sensitive. He's not vulgar. He's not greedy. He's not a dog sniffing a cupboard at one of these sales. He's not hungry. He's, he's looking at art with all its poetry and history, and it stuns him into silence. We see who he is. He's more thoughtful. He can barely breathe as he's walking through this house, this grand house with all these find things on the wall and in the corners. Around him, he's surrounded by people who look at houses like this and think, oh my God, these people are selling stuff. They died or they're going broke and I'm going to dance on their grave or their misfortune. Just look at these little beauties I might pick up. It might be 
They might be excited by that, or they might have that feeling quenched when they do buy it. That's not Marcher. He appreciates. Maybe that's why he's lost in the crowd. Others around him acquire, but he appreciates. Okay, back to the story. It led, briefly, in the course of the October afternoon, to his closer meeting with May Bartram, whose face, a reminder, yet not quite a remembrance, as they sat much separated at a very long table, had begun merely by troubling him rather pleasantly. It affected him as the sequel of something of which he had lost the beginning. Let me pause there. What a beautiful phrase, a reminder, yet not quite a remembrance. It troubled him pleasantly, the sequel of something of which he had lost the beginning. Isn't this just wonderful? You don't have to be old to know what this is like, where you can vaguely remember somebody. You feel good about it somehow, but you can't put your finger on why. You don't have to be old to know what that's like. But if you are old, you definitely know. You see someone from your past. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a fling. Maybe a work colleague. Maybe the the cousin of an old friend. Someone you talked to, flirted with, had some brief encounter that was significant, momentous. Maybe it was not so brief, but they look so different now that you can't quite place them correctly. A lot of time is, a lot of water has gone under that bridge, right? James makes all of this so precise and so elevated. He gets that this kind of thing has consequences for us. This is, this is momentous. Let's go back to the story. I don't need to interrupt. I, won't want, I don't want to interrupt too much. So let's just say, let's just let James tell us all about her and how she knows this as well. But she's not going to blurt it out. She's going to stay reserved and let John Marcher make some kind of overture, a direct question. She'll let him flounder, which tells us a lot about her. Confident, bemused, self-contained, playful, friendly, but not desperate. These two are fun to watch. Okay, back to the story. He knew it. We're still talking about the sequel here. The sequel to something he can't remember the start of it. He knew it, and for the time, quite welcomed it as a continuation, but didn't know what it continued, which was an interest or an amusement the greater, as he was also somehow aware, yet without a direct sign from her, that the young woman herself hadn't lost the thread. She hadn't lost it, but she wouldn't give it back to him, he saw, without some putting forth of his hand for it. And he not only saw that, but saw several things more, things odd enough in the light of the fact that at the moment some accident of grouping brought them face to face, he was still merely fumbling with the idea that any contact between them in the past would have had no importance. If it had had no importance, he scarcely knew why his actual impression of her should so seem to have so much. The answer to which, however, was that in such a life as they all appeared to be leading for the moment, one could but take things as they came. He was satisfied, without in the least being able to say why, that this young lady might roughly have ranked in the house as a poor relation. Satisfied also that she was not there on a brief visit, but was more or less a part of the establishment, almost a working, a remunerated part. Didn't she enjoy at periods of protection that she paid for by helping, among other services, to show the place and explain it, deal with the tiresome people? answer questions about the dates of the building, 
the styles of the furniture, the authorship of the pictures, the favorite haunts of the ghost. It wasn't that she looked as if you could have given her shillings. It was impossible to look less so. Yet when she finally drifted toward him, distinctly handsome, though ever so much older, older than when he had seen her before, it might have been as an effect of her guessing that he had, within the couple of hours, devoted more imagination to her than to all the others put together, and had thereby penetrated to a kind of truth that the others were too stupid for. She was there on harder terms than anyone. She was there as a consequence of things suffered, one way and another, in the interval of years. And she remembered him very much as she was remembered, only a good deal better. So, now we know she's there, mysteriously, sort of working, but not exactly a servant. You can't just give her shillings. She's not a tour guide, but yet she's fulfilling that kind of a function. Something painful in her past has led to it. She remembers him, and he cannot get over her. He's spent hours at this luncheon, obsessed, and in his obsession, he senses what others have missed. Something happened to her. Okay, now, as a reader, I am in. I'm really in. I want to know about them. I want to know about them both. We're still on the first page of this story, and these aren't my kind of people, really. They're at luncheon, they're looking at this fine art, but hey, I think, what's the phrase? Oh, I wish I could credit it. The phrase where someone said, if Mark Twain was saddled with the characters of Henry James, he would have quickly maneuvered them all into wells. <laughs> I'm a little closer to Twain than James, but hey, I'll set that aside just as I do when I'm with Proust. I don't have much in common with with the hoi polloi of Paris, either. I don't know many duchesses. Not really my people, but hey, I'll buy in. I'll buy in when there's this much humanity at stake. They're at luncheon, which I don't do, but I eat lunch. They're looking at this fine art, but hey, I like art. More than that, I know what it's like to see someone you knew a long time ago and feel this connection and yet not really understand how or why. That's what I'm in. That's why I'm in. That's why I'm willing to ride along in this museum mansion with this fop of an author. Sorry to all you fops out there. <laughs> Suddenly I feel like it's a piece of reality that I don't always get. Yes, it's very refined, you might say the stakes aren't that high. So you recognize someone you knew a long time ago. But you know what? The stakes are high because sometimes life throws mysteries like this at us and the stakes, I don't know. I feel like they're high. Stakes are high enough for me. We don't get married or go to a funeral every single day of our lives. A hundred days can go by with nothing much other than the same old, same old. But in that hundred days you suddenly see someone magnetic that you have some history with. Well, that's a milestone for that hundred days. Your heart races, your mind is engaged, and suddenly it's as if you've taken a trip to Alaska or Bangkok. Your mind is buzzing with fresh ideas. You want to know more. You feel engaged. I'm in, Mr. James. It's like you did everything to make it hard for me. Your prose, it's all medicine without a grain of sugar, let alone a spoonful but I don't care. I'm in. 
bring on the health benefits. Salubrious. I'm drinking whatever potion you're pouring out. Back to the story. By the time they at last thus came to speech, they were alone in one of the rooms, remarkable for a fine portrait over the chimney place, out of which their friends had passed. And the charm of it was that even before they had spoken, they had practically arranged with each other to stay behind for talk. The charm, happily, was in other things too, partly in there being scarce a spot at Weatherend without something to stay behind for. It was in the way the autumn day looked into the high windows as it waned, the way the red light, breaking at the close from under a low, somber sky, reached out in a long shaft and played over old wainscots, old tapestry, old gold, old color. It was most of all, perhaps, in the way she came to him, as if, since she had been turned on to deal with the simpler sort, he might— should he choose to keep the whole thing down, just take her mild attention for a part of her general business. As soon as he heard her voice, however, the gap was filled up and the missing link supplied. The slight irony he divined in her attitude lost its advantage. He almost jumped at it to get there before her. I met you years and years ago in Rome. I remember all about it. She confessed to disappointment. She had been so sure he didn't. And to prove how well he did, he began to pour forth the particular recollections that popped up as he called for them. Her face and her voice, all at his service now, worked the miracle, the impression operating like the torch of a lamplighter who touches into flame, one by one, a long row of gas jets. Marcher flattered himself the illumination was brilliant, yet he was really still more pleased on her showing him, with amusement, that in his haste to make everything right he had got most things rather wrong. It hadn't been at Rome, it had been at Naples, and it hadn't been eight years before, it had been more nearly ten. She hadn't been either with her uncle and aunt, but with her mother and brother, in addition to which it was not with the Pembles he had been, but with the Boyers coming down in their company from Rome, a point on which she insisted, a little to his confusion, and as to which she had her evidence in hand. The Boyers she had known, but didn't know the Pembles, though she had heard of them, and it was the people he was with who had made them acquainted. The incident of the thunderstorm that had raged round them with such violence as to drive them for refuge into an excavation— this incident had not occurred at the palace of the Caesars, but at Pompeii, on an occasion when they had been present there at an important find. He accepted her amendments. He enjoyed her corrections, though the moral of them was, she pointed out, that he really didn't remember the least thing about her, and he only felt it as a drawback that when all was made strictly historic, there didn't appear much of anything left. They lingered together still, she neglecting her office, for from the moment he was so clever she had no proper right to him, and both neglecting the house, just waiting as to see if a memory or two more wouldn't again breathe on them. It hadn't taken them many minutes, after all, to put down on the table, like the cards of a pack, those that constituted their respective hands. Only what came out was that the pack was unfortunately not perfect, that the past, invoked, invited, encouraged, could give them, naturally, no more than it had. 
It had made them anciently meet, her at twenty, him at twenty-five, but nothing was so strange, they seemed to say to each other, as that, while so occupied, it hadn't done a little more for them. They looked at each other as with the feeling of an occasion missed. The present would have been so much better if the other, in the far distance, in the foreign land, hadn't been so stupidly meager. There weren't, apparently, all counted, more than a dozen little old things that had succeeded in coming to pass between them. Trivialities of youth, simplicities of freshness, stupidities of ignorance, small possible germs, but too deeply buried, too deeply, didn't it seem, to sprout after so many years. Okay. We are in Henry James territory now. Two people recognize one another after years, and it's hugely momentous, and James is describing it with the kind of in-depth precision and feeling and all-compassing attention. Who else goes this deep? Proust? Definitely not many others. It's hugely momentous, this meeting, but yet it's kind of disappointing, too. It's so exciting to see one another. But then you remember what you actually had in common. He gets all the details wrong, first of all. But even after they're straightened out, it's kind of like, oh, so we just knew each other. Here's a, here's a half a dozen things that we could say about it. What kind of a connection is that? It's not like we had sex. Well, that's the modern day way of looking at it. Maybe for a man and a woman. But for James, in James's world, it might be. It's not like we, we flirted or... Or danced or kissed. It's not like we once had an understanding. We were not promised to one another once upon a time. We didn't spend a fortnight together. So we just happened to meet. Ho hum. And if that's all we got, ho and hum, we might have a moment that's well described, but ultimately flat and meaningless. Too flat and meaningless for this to be one of the greatest novellas of all time. Maybe this happens. And then the characters go somewhere, and the real story begins. That's what a lot of authors do. They have a, a moment like this, and they use that to rhyme with the action that comes later. That's the main story. But that's not what we get either. James is better than that, I'm happy to report. Back to the story. There's going to be a pivot here. Marcher could only feel he ought to have rendered her some service, saved her from a capsized boat in the bay, or at least recovered her dressing bag filched from her cab in the streets of Naples by a lazzarone with a stiletto. Or it would have been nice if he could have been taken with fever all alone at his hotel and she could have come to look after him, to write to his people, to drive him out in convalescence. Then they would be in possession of the something or other that their actual show seemed to lack. It yet somehow presented itself this show as too good to be spoiled, so that they were reduced for a few minutes more to wondering a little helplessly why, since they seemed to know a certain number of the same people, their reunion had been so long averted. They didn't use that name for it, but their delay from minute to minute to join the others was a kind of confession that they didn't quite want it to be a failure. Their attempted supposition of reasons for their not having met but showed how little they knew of each other. There came, in fact, a moment when Marcher felt a positive pang. It was vain to pretend she was an old friend, 
for all the communities were wanting, in spite of which it was as an old friend that he saw she would have suited him. He had new ones enough, was surrounded with them, for instance, on the stage of the other house. As a new one, he probably wouldn't have so much as noticed her. He would have liked to invent something, get her to make believe with him that some passage of a romantic or critical kind had originally occurred. He was really almost reaching out in imagination, as against time, for something that would do, and saying to himself that if it didn't come, this sketch of a fresh start would show for quite awkwardly bungled. They would separate, and now for no second or third, no third chance. They would have tried and not succeeded. Then it was, just at the turn as he afterwards made it out to himself, that, everything else failing, she herself decided to take up the case and, as it were, save the situation. He felt as soon as she spoke that she had been consciously keeping back what she said and hoping to get on without it, a scruple in her that immensely touched him when, by the end of three or four minutes more, he was able to measure it. What she brought out, at any rate, quite cleared the air and supplied the link the link it was so odd he should frivolously have managed to lose. Oh boy, let's pause here. You hear this? He's disappointed. Why weren't we closer? Why didn't we have more of a connection? Why isn't there a more solid basis for this? I, I feel it. I feel that I want you to be my old friend and yet there's nothing there. I can't find it. And we, the readers, think, yes, why not? It would be so great if they did. They have new friends. New friends, they've, they don't have much in common. But as old friends, if they had some old connection, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it? it feels like such a tragedy that they didn't have this. They have this nice moment. They can't leave it alone. They can't part from each other. They're lingering. It seems like they're connected somehow or should be. But how? Why? There's nothing there. It's all going to be... Who writes like this? <laughs> Who gets this kind of life into their works? Very few people, Henry James, and we readers think, why not? Why can't it be that they're connected somehow? And then, just when we think... It's heartbreakingly pointless. James aims us towards something more. She's about to supply the link. She's been holding it back. Let's go back to the story. You know, this is in dialogue, by the way. You don't see the quotation marks, so I'll tell you. It's in dialogue. You know, you told me something I've never forgotten, and that again and again has made me think of you since. It was that tremendously hot day when we went to Sorrento, across the bay, for the breeze. What I allude to was what you said to me on the way back as we sat under the awning of the boat, enjoying the cool. Have you forgotten? He had forgotten, and was even more surprised than ashamed. But the great thing was that he saw in this no vulgar reminder of any sweet speech, the vanity of women had long memories, but she was making no claim on him of a compliment or a mistake. With another woman, a totally different one, he might have feared the recall, possibly even some imbecile offer. So, 
In having to say that he had indeed forgotten, he was conscious rather of a loss than of a gain. He already saw an interest in the matter of her mention. I try to think, but I, I give it up. Yet I remember the Sorrento day. I'm not very sure you do, May Bartram, after a moment, said, and I'm not very sure I ought to want you to. It's dreadful to bring a person back at any time to what he was ten years before. If you've lived away from it, she smiled, so much the better. Okay, I'll pause here. I am totally engaged now. He's sure it wasn't a sweet speech. He wasn't in love or lust. He didn't throw himself out there. He didn't make a mistake by offering marriage or love. He didn't say she was the most beautiful woman in the world and he couldn't live without her. He knows that. He knows he didn't do that. He knows from her demeanor now. And yet, he said something that she's thought about for ten years again and again, and it would be dreadful to remind him of it. What could this be? The suspense. James. Ah, oh, he's so good. Even with this prose that wanders around sometimes, that's opaque sometimes, he's going straight at it now. Never mind the maneuvers. Oh, God! Oh, Damn <laughs> <laughs> we can't stop now. You're done with your dinner? You're done with your dinner? I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to create a cliffhanger here. How about how about coffee and dessert? Can you, can you... Can I bring you some coffee and dessert so we could just read the end of chapter one? Can we do that, you ridiculous timekeeper? Are you that much in a hurry? Let's just keep going, and then we'll pause, and we'll return to this story next time. Is that okay with you? Can you just... Can you just have a cappuccino? I'll be, I'll back up one paragraph, repeat it, and then we'll go to the end. We have got to find out what it is that he said to her 10 years ago, don't we? We get some banter now, some verbal jousting, both of them extremely smart and sensitive, the two of them in this fancy house. We are in good company, and the stakes are high. I'm not very sure you do. May Bartram, after a moment, said, and I'm not very sure I ought to want you to. It's dreadful to bring a person back at any time to what he was ten years before. If you've lived away from it, she smiled, so much the better. Ah, if you haven't, why should I? he asked. Lived away, you mean, from what I myself was? From what I was. I was, of course, an ass. Marcher went on, but I would rather know from you just the sort of ass I was than, from the moment you have something in your mind, not know anything. Still, however, she hesitated. But if you've completely ceased to be that sort, why, I can then all the more bear to know. Besides, perhaps I haven't. Perhaps. Yet if you haven't, she added, I suppose you'd remember. Not indeed that I in the least connect with my impression the invidious name you use. If I had only thought you foolish, she explained, the thing I speak of wouldn't so have remained with me. It was about yourself. She waited as if it might come to him, but as, only meeting her eyes in wonder, he gave no sign, she burnt her ships. Has it ever happened? Then it was that while he continued to stare, a light broke for him, and the blood slowly came to his face, which began to burn with recognition. Do you mean, 
I told you. But he faltered, lest what came to him shouldn't be right, lest he should only give himself away. It was something about yourself that it was natural one shouldn't forget. That is, if one remembered you at all. That's why I ask you, she smiled, if the thing you then spoke of has ever come to pass. Oh, then he saw, but he was lost in wonder and found himself embarrassed. This, he also saw, made her sorry for him, as if her illusion had been a mistake. It took him but a moment, however, to feel it hadn't been, much as it had been a surprise. After the first little shock of it, her knowledge on the contrary began, even if rather strangely, to taste sweet to him. She was the only other person in the world, then, who would have it, and she had had it all these years, while the fact of his having so breathed his secret had unaccountably faded from him. No wonder they couldn't have met as if nothing had happened. I judge, he finally said, that I know what you mean. Only I had, strangely enough, lost any sense of having taken you so far into my confidence. Is it because you've taken so many others as well? I've taken nobody. Not a creature since then. So that I'm the only person who knows? The only person in the world. Well, she quickly replied, I myself have never spoken. I've never, never repeated of you what you told me. She looked at him so that he perfectly believed her. Their eyes met over it in such a way that he was without a doubt. And I never will. She spoke with an earnestness that, as if almost excessive, put him at ease about her possible derision. Somehow the whole question was a new luxury to him, that is, from the moment she was in possession. If she didn't take the sarcastic view she clearly took the sympathetic, and that was what he had had in all the long time from no one whomsoever. What he felt was that he couldn't at present have begun to tell her, and yet could profit perhaps exquisitely by the accident of having done so of old. Please don't, then. We're just right as it is. Oh, I am, she laughed, if you are. To which she added, then... You do still feel in the same way. It was impossible he shouldn't take to himself that she was really interested, though it all kept coming as a perfect surprise. He had thought of himself so long as abominably alone. And lo, he wasn't alone a bit. He hadn't been, it appeared, for an hour since those moments on the Sorrento boat. It was she who had been, he seemed to see as he looked at her, she who had been made so by the graceless fact of his lapse of fidelity, to tell her what he had told her, what had it been, but to ask something of her, something that she had given in her charity, without his having, by a remembrance, by a return of the spirit, failing another encounter, so much as thanked her. What he had asked of her had been simply at first not to laugh at him. She had beautifully not done so for ten years, and she was not doing so now. So he had endless gratitude to make up. Only for that he must see just how he had figured to her. 
What exactly was the account I gave? Of the way you did feel? Well, it was very simple. You said you had had, from your earliest time, as the deepest thing within you, the sense of being kept for something rare and strange, possibly prodigious and terrible, that was sooner or later to happen to you, that you had in your bones the foreboding and the conviction of, and that would perhaps overwhelm you. Do you call that very simple? John Marcher asked. She thought a moment. It was perhaps because I seemed, as you spoke, to understand it. You do understand it? He eagerly asked. Again, she kept her kind eyes on him. You still have the belief? Oh, he exclaimed helplessly. There was too much to say. Whatever it's to be, she clearly made out, it hasn't yet come. He shook his head in complete surrender now. It hasn't yet come. Only, you know, it isn't anything I'm to do, to achieve in the world, to be distinguished or admired for. I'm not such an ass as that. It would be much better, no doubt, if I were. It's to be something you're merely to suffer? Well, say to wait for, to have to meet, to face, to see suddenly break out in my life, possibly destroying all further consciousness, possibly annihilating me, possibly, on the other hand, only altering everything, striking at the root of all my world and leaving me to the consequences, however they shape themselves. She took this in, but the light in her eyes continued for him not to be that of mockery. Isn't what you describe, perhaps, but the expectation, or at any rate, the sense of danger, familiar to so many people, of falling in love? John Marcher thought. Did you ask me that before? No, I wasn't so free and easy then, but it's what strikes me now. Of course, he said after a moment, it strikes you. Of course, it strikes me. Of course, what's in store for me may be no more than that. The only thing is, he went on, that I think if it had been that, I should by this time know. Do you mean because you've been in love? And then, as he but looked at her in silence, You've been in love, and it hasn't meant such a cataclysm, hasn't proved the great affair. Here I am, you see. It hasn't been overwhelming. Then it hasn't been love, said May Bartram. Well, at least I thought it was. I took it for that. I've taken it till now. It was agreeable. It was delightful. It was miserable, he explained. But it wasn't strange. It wasn't what my affairs to be. You want something all to yourself, something that nobody else knows or has known. It isn't a question of what I want. God knows I don't want anything. It's only a question of the apprehension that haunts me, that I live with day by day. 
He said this so lucidly and consistently that he could see it further impose itself. If she hadn't been interested before, she'd have been interested now. Is it a sense of coming violence? Evidently now, too, again, he liked to talk of it. I don't think of it as, when it does come, necessarily violent. I only think of it as natural. And as, of course, above all, unmistakable. I think of it simply as the thing. The thing will of itself appear natural. Then how will it appear strange? Marcher bethought himself. It won't. To me. To whom, then? Well, he replied, smiling at last, say, to you. Oh, then I'm to be present? Why, you are present, since you know. I see. She turned it over. But I mean, at the catastrophe. At this, for a minute, their lightness gave way to their gravity. It was as if the long look they exchanged held them together. It will only depend on yourself, if you'll watch with me. Are you afraid? she asked. Don't leave me now, he went on. Are you afraid? she repeated. Do you think me simply out of my mind? he pursued instead of answering. Do I merely strike you as a harmless lunatic? No, said May Bartram. I understand you. I believe you. You mean you feel how my obsession, poor old thing, may correspond to some possible reality? To some possible reality. Then you will watch with me? She hesitated, then for the third time put her question. Are you afraid? Did I tell you I was? At Naples? No, you said nothing about it. Then I don't know, and I should like to know said John Marcher. You'll tell me yourself whether you think so. If you'll watch with me, you'll see. Very good, then. They had been moving by this time across the room, and at the door, before passing out, they paused as for the full wind-up of their understanding. I'll watch with you, said May Bartram. Okay, there we go. Thank you for waiting through your dessert and your cappuccino. What an unusual couple we have here. He's been expecting something rare and strange to happen to him, some kind of event or catastrophe, something monumental. He told one person in his life, her. She's dwelled on it ever since. Ten years later, they're reunited. It hasn't happened yet but they are going to watch for it together. We will have more from this masterpiece 
coming up in another episode. Come back for another meal, won't you? My thanks to my emailer, Abhishek, for calling me a squirrel. A rodent, a dirty rodent, sure, but an adorable and adventurous one. Okay, I like squirrels. Although, they attack my wife, terrorize her, but that's a different story. Thank you so much for being here. I hope your days are filled with love and fun and your companions are all fun-loving men and women who stand up for the Kaiser when that's called for. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>